This is a diet of Brussels. Uh, we're going to call this one some meters because um, Ursula von der Leyen today saying that there were some meters to the finishing line. Um, various people have asked me to do an episode about the negotiations recently um, and I've held off because to a considerable degree I, I felt there wasn't much that could usefully be said. We're here the afternoon of the Trix's watch 20th of uh, November and we don't know where we are or rather we know where we are which is we're pretty much in the same place we've been for a fortnight now where the two sides have worked up an awful lot of text. We have reports now that there's maybe 95% of the text of a treaty in place but the 5% that's missing is the 5% that was always the problem at the beginning. Governance, level playing field, fisheries. Those issues have not been resolved. Uh, we get various bits of briefing and uh, small amounts of leaking from the negotiations, but the pattern follows a fairly constant kind of rhythm. We talk about substantial differences, we talk about some progress, we talk about the persistence of those uh, gaps between the two sides, and always it comes down to the same kinds of problems and the same touted solutions of where we might go. Now all of this raises some questions about well if that's where we might go why don't we go there but also we we have to be clear that there aren't many meters left to a finishing line because a finishing line is coming whether we like it or not and that's really conditioned by time we are past let me count at least the third if not the fourth tentative deadline of when talks had to be wrapped up by if there was to be a ratification by the end of the year. Remember this deal would need, if it exists, uh, and is to be operational on the 1st of uh, January 2021, not only needs to be agreed by the two sides but has to be ratified. So that's relatively simple for the UK. It can uh, put things through Parliament very quickly if it needs to and it can suspend its CRAG requirements, which require 21 working days uh, before Parliament of any treaty that's signed. Um, and that's good because that deadline has gone uh, already two weeks ago. Um, whereas the EU needs to have uh, a vote uh, by the European Parliament, which in turn needs to have uh, re review and recommendations from at least three of its committees um, and those committees will be meeting for the last time in uh, not very much time in probably uh, a week uh, or two uh, in a week actually is all it is so they need time to to write their reports and to consider things before going to the plenary which is uh ending on the 16th of december the european council might want to have a say on things but certainly the council of ministers would need to meet and they are available in different formations 
up until uh, the middle of December. But they too also will have to go back to national capitals to check that they're happy with the text, which at this point is running at uh, over a thousand pages, probably quite a lot more than that. We haven't been given a, a last count. So um, absent a text that can be considered and can't even be considered in its incomplete state, let alone its uh, complete state, uh, we have a real problem here. Um, there's some potential for provisional application, but that's very limited and uh, you would want only to be in that situation if you were very confident that the other side was going to follow through on its ratification processes. And in the context of low trust, that is an issue both ways. And yet, we continue to push back on these deadlines. Uh, I remember at the beginning of this process, we were talking about September, maybe early October is the point at which you'd want to uh, be getting to the ratification phase. Then we've kind of drifted to late October. Now it's, it's going to be mid-November. Now we're talking about maybe next week or possibly the week after, so dipping into December. Why is this? Well, two reasons. One is that there's always a bit of flexibility in such matters, um, but less and less of that flexibility. Remember, the 31st of December as the end of the transition period is, in effect, immovable. Uh, we don't have use of the extension mechanism that was in the withdrawal agreement anymore uh, because of the decisions back in the summer by the UK. We have uh, an option under uh, the law of treaties that if both, uh, if all contracting parties agree to amend a treaty, then they can do that. But uh, what incentive is there to stick more time on the process uh, if uh, you're just going to have more of this kind of delay and dither? Uh, so quite apart from being quite uh, procedurally difficult, the, the politics don't really incentivize it, especially when both sides think that they gain something from uh, being inflexible about the deadline uh, as a way of extracting concessions from the other. But this takes us to the second reason about why we have pushed this back as far as it can possibly go. And that is, what happens if this doesn't work out? One of the clearest messages that's come through in this round of the negotiations in Brexit during the transition period is that neither side wants to take the blame for this not working. From the very beginning, both sides have acted in a way that tries to forestall attribution of blame. Partly because that's a very natural thing to do, but partly because of real concerns that the other side is going to be unreliable or punitive in their approach. So by continuing to press on, by continuing to make positive sounds, by saying we're trying everything we can to make this work, you are attempting to establish uh, a narrative which says, well, we've tried everything, so it must be them that haven't tried everything. Of course, if everyone's trying everything and we're still not moving things forward, then uh, either we're not 
actually both telling the truth, or it turns out that the gaps are unbridgeable. And at this stage, it's really hard to know which is which. I think this is the, the fundamental problem that we, we face, is that number 10 has not made up its mind. I've talked to numerous people in governments circles, in practitioner circles, in academic circles, in media circles, I haven't met a single person who thinks that number 10 knows what it ultimately is going to do, to sign or not to sign. And I think that's the impression of the EU as well, that the UK has yet to make up its mind on this. And so it's even more important not to be pushed into a corner where they have to say, oh, well, no, we can't do this anymore. So even though the practicality has become less and less manageable, that does not stop uh, uh, the political dynamic pushing towards uh, trying to find some kind of uh, bodge on procedure and process to try and make it happen. Maybe it's also worth remembering that if we don't, have an agreement by the end of the year, it doesn't mean that this process has failed terminally. It's entirely possible that uh, you could have an end of the transition period, but a maintenance of negotiations, and then it might be that you hope that the other side will realise that things aren't quite how they thought they would be, therefore there'll be some concessions, and then we'll belatedly reach an agreement, and then during the spring we, we bring in uh, that that deal that just couldn't, you know, the, the gap, there's a bit of a gap in January, February, March, but not a, not a, a terminal one. So uh, failure is not purely absolute, it can be a, a relative failure, it can be a delay. So I think we should remember that. But if we come back to this point about number 10, why the indecision? And I don't really like saying, oh, it's because Boris Johnson is an indecisive person, although I think temperamentally is. I think it's actually, if you, you try and break it down, you can see that there is a problem. That objectively, there is no good choice in this. That uh, going down uh, a path of trying to secure a deal, or se securing a deal, making concessions... To, to do that because that is likely to be part of what needs to happen means maybe compromising his domestic political base at a time when he is not exactly flavour of the month with his party even if he has uh, got rid of Dominic Cummings. So uh, remember that there's a context of Covid, of levelling up, of funding uh, we've got a lot of hostile kind of commentary uh, at this stage. You know, giving ground to the EU is going to be a tough sell. And even for a uh, consummate salesman like Boris Johnson, as he thinks of himself, that is a problem. On the plus side, he would get some kudos with the EU for trying, if he showed that he was trying sincerely. Uh, he would reduce the economic costs of ending the transition period uh, compared to not having a deal. And he would lay the groundwork for rebuilding EU relations and also potentially limiting the, the contagion cost to other relations with third parties. 
However, bringing a deal still comes with costs. It still comes with economic costs and political costs. And, you know, we might contrast that with resolutely refusing to have a deal. It's just kind of collapse the process, uh, deliberately or not. Then that's going to really put the relationship with the EU in the uh, trash can, as my American colleagues would say. Uh, but uh, it would uh, probably win him plaudits uh, with his uh, backbench. And, uh, you know, he might hope that the economic disruptions that come with it, which would be larger than if he had a deal, would uh, be kind of swallowed up in COVID recovery. Everyone's getting a vaccine and leaping out of the house and they're so happy they don't notice that there are lots of problems. But in either scenario, deal or no deal, Boris Johnson likely gets some blame. And uh, I think nobody likes to be blamed for such things, let alone for something that will be uh, a massive political and economic decision. All of which I think brings us to a final question, which is what might push us towards a decision? Partly that's going to be about time, although ironically, I think as we get much beyond the next week, uh, it is hard to see how time will have uh, an, a positive effect on reaching a decision, mainly because there might be the view that it's just simply impossible to hit that deadline. So we may as well go through it and just see what happens. And maybe it's better because, frankly, it might not be uh, any worse than the situation we have. Secondly, it may be that we have some kind of um, reshaping of the, the calculation through some other development. And the obvious one here is that if COVID management uh, looks like it is turning a corner, if lockdown is working in the UK, if uh, vaccines are multiple and effective and coming on stream very quickly, then that might make politicians on both sides think that they can flex a bit on this. But I think those are really the only kind of things that might shape things. Um, the problems are fairly basic ones. They reflect very different uh, positions and principles. Uh, I think, you know, of the three, the fisheries is maybe the, the most easily resolvable because it's quite fungible and it's more a matter of kind of balancing the pain all round that, you know, everyone's going to have to concede least a little bit um, but the level playing field and dispute settlement mechanism I think are more ones that are of uh, theology uh, than anything else um, and uh, I don't know that we can uh, cover the gap quickly especially as we have been focused on these topics for eight months now nine months so it's hard to see a novel solution jumping out that's missed everyone else missed up until now so, doubtless, as soon as I post this up and you listen to it uh, on your Friday night in lockdown, wherever that might be, something will happen. And at that point, we'll talk about it again. We'll have a discussion about why I didn't spot the breakthrough or the change that inevitably happened 
uh, at that point. But until then, have a great weekend, stay safe, and I will come back at you as soon as we've got more to talk about. <laughs>